Hey, what did you think of the jingle that I picked? I liked it. I think it's a good jingle. Do you think we could make our own? Right now, let's do it. It's Ian and Will, and they're making a podcast. They're talking about physics and also nerd things. Hey! Nice. That was... All right. That's what we'll use. That's perfect. That's what we'll be our jingle from now on. Wow. So what did you think of episode one? Did you have fun? I had fun, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Did it sound like I think uh, was it received by the masses the way you expected? Well, you know, we did get like three tweets from it, so it's uh, it's pretty good at least. You know. Well, so it's almost incredible that we even got those three tweets given <laughs> given the, the Twitter account got deleted. I had to make a new you know, one. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. Actually, that's probably some errata we should list on this episode. Oh um, man, when we yeah, get that's to that true. Section. So I should pull up what the actual account is. Yeah, again, probably, probably I? good call. Let me get probably that open on my other screen. I got so many of these Twitter accounts now. Okay, I got it. Yeah. All right. I followed as okay. many science people as I could on it. I, I noticed that. I and noticed also that. T.C. Bear. And Well, we all should follow T.C. Bear. Everyone should be following T.C. Bear If you're not following T.C. Bear right now, follow T.C. Bear on Twitter right now. Yeah. Shout out to T.C. Bear. He's like, um, oh, what's that? Oh, what's its name? Uh, hold on. Is it, is it Gritty? Is it Gritty? Is that the one that I'm thinking of? Gritty the, for the, the mascot? mascot for who? Gritty is a mascot. For the Philadelphia, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Philadelphia Flyers. Gritty. Yeah, I'm not looking up Gritty. Gritty scares me. <laughs> gritty, Gritty is a scary. I'm not looking scary, up Gritty. Scary man. But my point is, he's not like Gritty. He's wholesome. Yeah, and friendly. And not from Philly. And wears clothes. Wears well, at least clothes. he wears a shirt. Does he a wear hat. pants? He wears a hat. He wears a hat. He wears pants. He wears, he wears a shorts, shirt. I think. He doesn't wear no pants. He's a bear. He doesn't need pants. He's, he's less um, business formal than a yogi. Um, Yogi wears a tie. That is way but, too fancy. But I don't think Yogi wears anything other than a tie and maybe a collar. So like, oh, less fancy, a little more party. Little, well, the tie is around his neck though. So like, I, I don't know. Oh yeah, it should be around his head if it's really party time. That's what I'm saying. What's the difference? I think you know. True. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to episode two of Reference Frames: Physics Through Popular Culture. Um, if you missed the intro in episode one. This is a podcast where we seek to educate, to learn, to teach, to understand physics by putting them uh, in the frame of easily recognizable images that you may have seen on your TV, on a movie theater screen, on your iPod video screen from 2011, or maybe anywhere else. The theater of your own mind. In um, your feed. The what? In your, in your feed. In, your, in the feed, if you will. Uh, my name is Ian. I am. I play the role here of showrunner, co-host, and audience liaison. I'll ask the questions that I think the audience would want to ask to my good friend and co-host, Mr. Will. Mm-hmm. That's my name, Mr. Will. Future Not, Dr. Will. That's, well, hopefully. But before we move right into that, I think we need to take a, we need to take a trip to the... Mm-hmm. To the correction um, zone. To the correction zone. So correction zone. Do not pass go. Go go directly to the correction zone. Wee, wee, wee. So we're about science here. We're about science and we're about fixing the mistakes that we, or more importantly, Will made in the last episode. Actually, I want to own up to mine first, which is the Twitter account. <laughs> correction zone item number one. The Twitter account is not whatever I said it was. I don't even remember anymore. 
think it's Reference Frames Podcast. At Reference Frames Podcast. Unfortunately, um, I didn't have any activity on that account, so Twitter banished it to the to the nether realm or whatever. Uh, now our podcast is at Podcast Frames because that was the best thing I could get. So please tweet your physics-based questions or any questions or comments or thoughts at Podcast Frames. Thank you. And, and hopefully we don't get sued by any, like, company that tries to sell like glasses frames and want to make a podcast about that because i'd sell out here. i'd sell our twitter account for that yeah fair. we can just make another one that's true <laughs> they're free we have, the, we have this section we could just make a new one you know <laughs> so a third twitter account all right take us to correction number two. Oh yeah so correction number two so last week <clears throat> uh i didn't use the word incorrectly i had to use the word correctly um so when we were talking about the pirates in pirates of the caribbean um, I said they were scurrilous scalawags, and I gave the definition as being um, foul-mouthed and evil, which is true. That is the definition of scurrilous. But then I said, uh, and I want to be clear, I did say I'm not 100% sure on this because I wasn't at the time. It felt wrong at the moment, and it was wrong. The etymology was not that of a poor person, uh, as I as I jokingly said. Um, what I was thinking of instead there was the word churlish, which is another delightful insult to use. Uh, churlish does come etymologically from uh, like an old English word for like a poor peasant or like a common folk. Um, scurrilous does not. So apologies there. The definition was correct. Etymology was not. So I know there were a lot there of people go. out there that were were mm-hmm. raging about that, clamoring for for corrections because yeah. you know I don't want to be the guy who, who told you who told you wrong wrong stuff. You know, not about physics, not about language, not about nothing. And now. You're only the guy that told them the wrong thing about language if they only listened to episode one. Which, I mean, if they didn't get hooked on that one, what are, they, what are we doing? Then we're not going to get them. That's just the way it goes. All right. We've made it. We're out of correction zone. Only two corrections. That's our, that's our high score. Yeah, we'll try to get past that next time. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> so I'll go for as many corrections as we can. Um, great. Should we get into the meat of it? Yeah, So for, sure. for the. I'll reiterate this part for the uh, because it is only indeed the second episode. When we leave corrections corner, we go into Will's mind physics section where he channels his inner DM and reads for us, takes us through a a narrative adventure experience um, that features some kind of physics principle that we're going to then expand upon throughout the rest of the episode. So that is what is coming up here, please, Will. Take it away. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one note before we get into it. Uh, this is not from a movie or a TV show. It's actually from the very recent past, um, from from the, the Olympics in Tokyo. So there's the setting. All right. <clears throat> Just after 7 p.m., August 1st, 2021. It's the ninth day of the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, Two top competitors vie for the gold medal in the high jump competition. Mutaz Essa Barshim, high jumper from Qatar, claimed bronze in 2012 and silver in 2016. Gold in Tokyo would complete the set. Italian Gianmarco Tamberi won gold at the 2016 World Indoor Championships, but suffered an ankle injury mere months before Rio. At the time, he emblazoned his cast with Road to Tokyo 2020. Barshim would sustain a nearly identical injury in 2018. In the time since, they've both recovered, trained hard, and now find themselves here in this hot and humid open-air Tokyo stadium. Nearing the end of the competition, Barsham approaches the bar in a loping stride, 
slowly gaining speed and turning before leaping high into the air, twisting into the iconic Fosbury flop form before clearing the bar completely. The man just jumped over a bar more than seven and a half feet high. To be clear, that's 2.37 meters or seven foot nine inches to be specific. Tom Barry then warms up his push-off leg and bolts for the bar. His technique is the exact same as Barsham's. Speed up, turn, the peculiar flop. The bar wobbles slightly. He nicked it, but it doesn't fall. The Italian and Qatari jumpers are now the only ones who managed to make it this high, and thus their dreams of gold hang on jumping over a 2.39 meter high bar. Both get three tries to do so, but are ultimately unsuccessful. The referee begins to explain that they will have to take turns until someone is able to clear the jump, but in a moment that will surely be splashed over every major news source's headline, is immediately interrupted by, can we have two gold? From Barsham. You see, Barsham and Tom Barry originally met more than a decade prior, and had each supported and motivated each other through the mental and physical pain of their injuries, forming a true friendship and rivalry. They had even joked previous to the event about sharing Tokyo's gold. All it took was the referee's confirmation that it was allowed, a moment of eye contact, and a small nod between them, and the two friends were hugging, screaming, and sharing the world championship. So, there's the story. Ian, do you have any guesses for what physics principle features there we'll be talking about today? It's such a heartwarming video to watch. It, oh, man. Yeah, actually, so I, 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 we'll put a link in the description. There's a wonderful video, and we'll talk about it a bit more, that shows a really good example of our principle in action. It's okay. delightful. All right, let's see here. So when I think of the high jump, here's what I'm thinking. Uh, we've got to get some speed worked up, right? Mm-hmm. We've got mm-hmm. to convert somehow. We've got to go from zero speed in the uh, vertical direction to some speed in the vertical direction. That's true. Uh, without sacrificing all of that horizontal speed. But the, uh, what is it, the Fosbury flop is also mm-hmm. so iconic that I can't help but feel like maybe somehow that's going to come into play here. Um, so the first thing I thought was like, oh, it's a jump. So we're going to talk about, I don't know, cannons, explosives. Doesn't seem quite right, does it? You know, a little violent. <sighs> somehow some kind of conversion of that, um, of the Fosbury flop being useful in in gaining height. Is that what we're going for here? Some kind of angular momentum angular velocity oh man you are so so close um it's all right you are you are right in that it is all about the fosbury flop that's why we're here today um but it's not angular momentum it's not force it's not momentum we're actually talking about center of mass today or center of gravity you may have heard okay so that's a fun one and it's really interesting yeah so first center of mass right center of gravity um, it's a fairly straightforward concept. It's just, you know, for any object, if you average out where all of its matter or mass lies around it, it has, in the average of all those, um, all that mass, uh, a, a point in space that is typically at the center of the object. So you have an apple, center of mass of that apple is probably going to be in the middle of the apple. If you have a person that's standing straight, center of the mass is usually around the, um, the belly button, maybe a little lower, um, depending on the mass distribution around their body. Um, so for most objects, that means pretty much in the dead center of the object. But some objects, it does not. So, for example, a donut or a boomerang, both of those objects, center of mass actually lies outside of the object, right? So in a donut's case, the center of the object is actually inside the donut hole, right? You're right. And then the boomerang, because it's curved like that, the center of mass lies not inside of the actual bent part, but a little 
away from it outside of the the center of the um of the boomerang's actual construction which is pretty cool right and this matters specifically for the high jump because if you push on an object with a force maybe we'll talk about force in a later episode Ooh. the center of mass is the point that accelerates according to newton's second law so that's the thing that you're pushing with a force the center of mass is the bit that's moving everything else moves around it obviously that's what makes the center of mass move but that's the point that's actually, mathematically speaking, has to follow and obey Newton's second law. And so a given force, or technically, to be clear, technically it's an impulse, but whatever, um, <laughs> can only move the center of mass of an object so high in the air before it falls back down. So if you, hear where I, if you, think, if you kind of think ahead where I'm going here, if you have a center of mass that lies outside of the object, that means if your object is correctly oriented, you can actually push parts of that object higher than the center of mass goes. Does that make sense? Say this again. So mm-hmm. I can only push my center of mass mm-hmm. a certain height, given a certain force, mm-hmm. right? But if I move my center of mass outside of my body, right, I'm, I'm kind of manipulating the center of mass to maximize the change in, in height, I guess, in this case. Yeah, that's the basic idea. And and to be fair, this this works with any object that has any three dimensional space to it, right? If no matter what the object is, some of it, some of the object will be above the center of mass just by virtue of it having taking up space, right? So like, it's always the case that some part of the object will be higher than the center of mass, right? But in the case, let's tie it back into the scene, right? These two let's bring it back. Olympic gold winners, right? They're doing this Fosbury flop, which I learned. Um, First used by a guy named Fosbury. Never, you never believe that. I didn't see um, that coming. Yeah, you didn't see that coming. Uh, in the 1968 Olympics, and ever since, literally in, in 1972, every single, almost every single high jumper was doing it because it's, it com- propelled him to the, to the gold medal in 1968 and it was obviously superior. And it's all about exploiting that center of mass idea. So just like a boomerang, if you imagine, and you watch the video that is in the description because it's really amazing. There's even a scene... That's looking. They have a camera set along, like looking along the bar they're jumping over, and you can see their body just wrap around the bar. It's really, really cool. Um, but they're doing that basically when your body's bent like an upside down U, like they do when they're doing the Fosbury flop. The center of mass is below the top of the U. It's kind of you know inside of the cup of the U, mm-hmm. which in this case the bottom of the U is the torso of the jumper. So even though the entire body of the of each jumper passes over the bar, their center of mass actually never has to go over the bar in order to do that. Oh, come on. Which is amazing. What? Which means with, you know, any given jump pre-Fosbury flop, that wasn't the case. So you could only ever jump over a bar that your center of mass could get over. Fosbury was like, oh, wait, I can get over a bar the same height with far less force. Right. And therefore, with the same force, you could go even higher. And that was the whole... And that's what propelled him, mm-hmm. <clears throat> literally, yeah. to a higher podium. Nice. Thank exactly. you. I yeah, for so I, I'm proud of you. Um, so actually, if you go to the video we'll put in there um, at the minute 20 mark, roughly, that's where you can see looking down the bar. It's really, it's pretty cool. You can see Tom Barry doing, doing his jump. It's not the jump that he actually, the last jump he made. Um, it's the one before that, but it's still really, really cool to watch. What? I had no idea that that is what... Why the I know. Fosbury flop was so important. I always just thought, oh, yeah, no, look, they're just modifying their little... body so that they don't hit the bar. 
it's no, they're mm-hmm. actually lowering their center of mass slash center of gravity outside their body and below so the cool. bar. That's mm-hmm. kind of mind boggling to me. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's really amazing. And you know, usually I'm sure it's not always below the bar, right? But only right. for the very highest jumps they're making, right? At their limit, right? The center mass is at or below the bar, which yeah. is really cool. That is very yeah. interesting. Yeah. You know, I did do high jump in high school. You did? I even made it over the bar at one at one at one single <laughs> one single meet. It was very exciting. Was it the flop? It was because of the flop? Oh, it was all the flop. It was not <laughs> me. It was all the flop. It was it was cheating using physics is what it was. So, Ian, with that in mind, yeah. Do you have any um, real world cases where we, where we see center of mass? And it doesn't have to be in this whole using it, exploiting it to like get over loops or things like that. But like center mass, it's pretty important in a lot of different areas. Yeah, um, actually, I see one on my daily drive. Oh, there we go. I drive. I'm not sponsored, but if this company wants to sponsor us and provide me a new, we doing NASCAR again? a new CRV. Oh, okay. I drive a Honda CRV, and actually on my sunblocker, I think it's also a mirror that you could open up and do stuff with, but it's a sunblocker. Uh, it basically says this vehicle has a high rollover point. Oh, that's not good. Well, that's a tall vehicle. I mean, you can fit a lot of stuff in the back. <laughs> but right, that's because the center of mass or the center of gravity is raised up. So if you were to take certain turns at high speeds... Uh, because of the way that the car could tilt during a turn, you could bring the center of mass outside the body of the car, outside the wheelbase, and suddenly, since your center of mass is not being supported, supported. by anything, right, it, your car could roll over. So that's one I see pretty regularly and have only been concerned about a handful of times when I took a turn, maybe a little too hot, a little too much speed. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's a great example. That's kind of a, a, a really common one and you know a, a kind of a, an extension of that that's kind of the more severe case is those double-decker buses you see in like london yeah and things like that yeah. um they're purposefully weighted a lot like below the seats on the whole bottom mm-hmm. um just because if they didn't there's a lot i mean especially when people if, if there's a bunch of people only in the top section which i feel like you want to be if it's not raining right, right. well it's london um, so it's probably, probably unsafe yeah well you know but you know it, in the rare case where it isn't raining yeah, the five london, minutes of the day um exactly uh you know yeah it's, it, it can be pretty dangerous so they, they they have to account for that which is pretty cool huh um another another situation that's similar to that a little more complicated i don't really want to get into it too much but uh for ships in the ocean right so they have a center of mass which is you know as a, anything that has mass does you know um, but it also has a thing called the center of buoyancy um and and you want to keep uh, let me see i think you want to keep the center of buoyancy above the center of mass i'm pretty sure um, which keeps it stable, so that every time it gets rocked, it'll rock back to being upright. Um, so if your center of buoyancy ever goes the opposite direction you want it to be, um, anytime you get rocked, it'll try to keep, like, it'll try to basically capsize the entire ship, go upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, really critical for ships like that. So anytime a ship, like a shipping ship, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, yeah, well done, Will. <laughs> uh huh, yep. Uh, any, <laughs> anytime one of those ships uh, has any um, cargo in them, they need to account for all the cargo to keep track of where their center of mass is. Um, and because and if you have either too, too little mass, right, your center of mass could go too high. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a very important uh, thing for them. That's why they have ballast and things like that, tanks they can take water in and all, all that fun stuff. And, of course, there's the elephant in the room that is mm. um, the trapeze artist with two buckets of water on a big 
wooden stick, mm-hmm. right? Held out on either side. You also see it with like slack liners, <clears throat> where basically, depending on where you hold your buckets of water or hold your arms, you can control which side of the rope or trapeze your center of mass lies on. So when you start to tilt one way, you would move the buckets of water a little more in the opposite direction to pull your center of mass back. So you're not throwing your body around so much, but you can control it just with your arms, right? Where where above the line is your center of mass. Oh, yeah. So you're always trying to... Or if you're Ian, that's not a problem. You just always keep your center of mass directly above the midpoint of the... Yeah, I'm, when it comes to slacklining, I'm pretty much flawless. I haven't touched exactly. my slackline in three or four years, I think. That's fair. And there are any number, we could tie this even more back to sports. We talk about football. Mm -hmm. A lot of football players want to keep their center of mass low when they are experiencing a confrontation with another player. You know, it tends to be the the player with the lower center of mass is more stable and can withstand an impulse, if you will. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the higher your center of mass, the more toppleable you are. Right. And here's a a silly one we can end with. those uh those bird toy things you know what i'm talking about that like balance on their beaks have you seen that it's like a little no little trick thing or it looks like the bird is like totally off balance like it, it, it the beak is touching almost its entire body is behind the beak and somehow it's balancing on the beak but they have their two wings kind of arcing around in front of it oh, you've seen those things no no well yeah the, i mean the, the funny thing is you know it looks like they should just fall over and it's like wow how is that staying up but you know they just wait the tips of the wings that are in front of the beak enough to balance out the the back of the, the back of the bird. Right. They're kind of like novelty toys you get at like a cracker cracker barrel or something. <laughs> That's where I go shopping for toys. <laughs> and old time. Yeah, I mean my nephew for the first time. Get him a cracker barrel. Get him a bottle of blueberry syrup. Mm-mm. Delicious. Mm-mm. You know, when I was a kid, uh slight aside, I had a bottle of blueberry syrup from Cracker Barrel. I was on a road trip with my dad and my grandpa. And it uh, it opened in my pocket. <laughs> Wait, it was it not in a good your time. Pocket? <laughs> <laughs> That's where syrup bottles go. Obviously, <laughs> when you're nine. Syrup in their pocket. Well, I don't do it anymore. That 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 kind of taught me my lesson on that Man, one. Man, I bet that pocket was sticky forever. Oh, uh, we had to change. I I threw those pants. You could not wear those anymore. It was. So, uh, how about those uh, audience questions? Uh, we got any of those? Wait, yet? do we need to wrap up we- our? Our full pop culture scene. Uh, I feel like we've. I feel like it we've up. got that. Maybe Our audience will ask us questions if um, if they're confused if they need more. Okay, sure. <clears throat> well, we ended up with a few good questions. We're not going to cover all of them in one episode because uh, we only have a few good questions. We'll get more. We'll get more. Yeah, as surely. we blow up, this episode is going to be huge. Um, so the first question. That we're going to go with also is was the first one asked from our friend at Amanda, please. Hmm. And Amanda asks, <clears throat> is there any physics science behind the multiverse, which is the main focus of phase four of the MCU? Minor spoiler alert. So, Will, what do you think? Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the multiverse. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so great question, Amanda. Wonderful question. Um, you know, pop culture often gets uh, inundated with a lot of these, um, you know, kind of uh, interpretations that kind of get maybe a little out of control uh, of, <laughs> of some, uh, some hard physics. But there is some uh, genuine um, physicists out there that, yeah, they, they subscribe to a, an A version of the multiverse. So the one I'm thinking of, there's probably more. Uh, I'm not 
a cosmologist by any any stretch of the imagination. But um, there's an interpretation of quantum mechanics called the many worlds theory, which is pretty cool. So um, I won't get into the, all the quantum mumbo jumbo here, but essentially every time any um, quantum uh, phenomena takes place, a phenomenon takes place, um, it the the typical interpretation people use is called the Copenhagen interpretation. Um, called that because it was decided on by, I believe, Niels Bohr um, and some other people in Copenhagen. He was he was Danish. Which basically, the, they, they posit that every time something is detected or measured or, or affected by anything in the world, um, it quote-unquote collapses into the thing you, you observe. So, for example, in quantum mechanics, you have these things that are in quantum states. So you might have heard of quantum computers where you have a qubit, right, where it's not just a zero or a one, but anywhere between zero and one. It's very, very cool. Um, in a quantum computer, for example, when you measure it, it becomes either a zero or a one. It isn't either. It's both beforehand, but when you measure it, it becomes a zero or a one. Um, and that's how qubits work in, in a quantum computer. And so um, the Copenhagen interpretation is the idea that when you do that measurement, when the computer does that measurement, it decides zero or one, and that is what it is, and the other one just goes off and disappears and never happens at all. It only existed up until that point. The many worlds interpretation is not that. It's that... Every time that happens, every time a, something makes a quantum decision, quote-unquote, though both those things take place. So bo- it was both a one and a zero, but you live in one of the two universes. You either live in the universe where it turned out to be a zero, or you live in the universe where it turned out to be a one. And that happens for every single quantum interaction, which, of which there are quite a few, you can imagine. And so basically the many worlds theory is that there's infinitely many universes, that all of which one universe is generated every single time a new or two, a, a split is generated every single time a, a quantum measurement um, takes place, which happens pretty much constantly. So infinite universes, pretty much. So not quite as exciting um, an interpretation as, say, the ending of Loki season one or anything like that. But spoiler alert. Um, spoiler alert. But yeah, so there, there, there is some physics to it. Um, so there are certainly plenty of physicists who subscribe to that interpretation. So Amanda, hopefully that answers your question sufficiently. Uh, the punchline was... Yes. Yes. MCU phase four is real. Uh, okay. Well, great. So that one question is what, you, is what we get this week. I think that brings us sort of to the end of, of, the, of the content. Now we get into the plug zone. Everyone's Woo! favorite section of a podcast. Where plug zone. Plug zone. Wherein your two co-hosts that you've been listening to beg of you, please. Uh, share if you like this podcast. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Share it with people you don't like as well. I was on a run today, and I was like, "Hey, podcast, we're sort of like a multi-level marketing thing where we just beg people <laughs> to, to share us with people." If you don't share this podcast to ten people you know, you won't find a thousand dollars in your pocket tomorrow. So that's why you should share us with people. Um, we have not. We don't pay for any advertising. Word of mouth is the best we can hope for. If you liked this podcast, something that is apparently really helpful, but I wouldn't know, is I guess leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts can be good. Don't know. Don't know how that works. Of course, you can find these episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the big ones, except for Google Podcasts, because I don't know how to list it there. (laughs) At least he's honest. Uh, If you have any physics questions for Will, for myself... 
if you have any corrections for Will or for myself, please please tweet at us at Podcast Frames. Again, we are pro-science, which sometimes means accepting when you're wrong about something, because that is A-OK. It's kind of the only way to do it. That's the only way to do it. Did I miss anything in the plug zone? I think that's the entire plug zone. I think I did a lot of plugging. Wait, uh, new Twitter handle. Did we do that? At Podcast Frames. You can also, I guess, follow us on Facebook, but I don't really know what to do with the Facebook page, so... Uh, okay, Will, do you want to say farewell to our uh, intrepid listeners? So long, farewell, Alvitos, and goodbye. Hope you have a wonderful day. I'm not. I'm still recording.